Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode in our series looking at criminal cases. Between 1983 and 1996, the Department of Isère experienced one of the darkest periods in the history when children between the ages of 5 and 15 years old started to mysteriously disappear one after another. Some were found murdered, while others were never found. police and the public prosecutor's office in Grenoble were soon overwhelmed by the events. Although they implied that the cases were ongoing, they eventually were dropped one after the other and almost all of them ended up in the archives. Left to fend for themselves and not knowing whom to turn to, some families of the missing children decided to organize and lead their own investigation. But just how far would they be willing to go? The case of the missing children of Isère also reflects a kind of legal system that would do anything to conceal the truth. Going so far as to misplace entire files, falsify information, and order the destruction of evidence and cadavers. This was something that had been unprecedented in the annals of the French legal system. Yet the underlying question still remained. Who was responsible for the disappearances of these children? Was it a serial killer or a dangerous sexual predator? Was it one or two several people? This latest criminal case will not only bring to light the many mistakes made by investigators, but also on the different, ingenious ways that some families used to deal with their sufferings. More importantly, would any of these help them find their children? On March 1983, in a small village in Sartre, the Janvier family was preparing to move. They decided to settle in Grenoble, where they hoped to make a new start to find a new job. They left behind a bakery business that had not been profitable for some time. Faced with mounting unpaid bills, they were not at an impasse. Unable to settle their debts, they decided to sell everything overnight rather than risk losing their business. Despite the homesickness and the pain and the fear that already plagued them at the thought of starting all over again, the couple had no intention of changing their minds. The Janvier's were the parents of four young children. The eldest, Jerome, was eight-year-old, Ludovic, six years, and Nicholas, two and a half. Virgin, the only girl in the family, was five years old. While waiting to find a home and a job, the couple and their children were living at a great-uncle in St. Martin de Hares. The house was located right in front of several blocks of low-income housing. It was not terribly big, but as long as it was temporary, it would be tolerable. The children, however, were happy to be living in a real town for the first time and were always restless. 
It's important to keep in mind that in those days, the current hysteria that many parents feel and experienced each day was not yet widespread. In the early 1980s, children were used to playing outside until evening, to go racing downhill on their bikes, to go roller skating, to lighting firecrackers, to falling and skinning their knees without alerting anyone. It was also a time when kids could do all the shopping for mom or dad without the risk of running into an ill-intended individual. As well, sensationalism in the media had not yet become a standard practice. Parents were so confident that they let their guards down so soon as children started walking and talking. At five years or six years old, many children were walking to school by themselves, chaperoned by a big brother or sister who was barely older than they were. Indeed, it was another era. It was clear that people were much less insecure than they are now. After living in the suburbs of Grenoble for barely three weeks, the Janvier family were beginning to get used to their new lives. The father had found a job working in one of the many factories on the outskirts and the children tried as best as they could to fit in their new school. However, nothing could have predicted the events that were about to take place. In the late afternoon of Thursday, March 17, 1983, Jerome, Lodowick, and little Nicholas were sent by their father to the corner store to buy him some cigarettes. Jerome and Ludwig, excited about using the change to buy some candy, left Nicholas in his baby carriage and headed into the store, which was located about 200 meters from their home. After buying their father's cigarettes and also filling them with licorice, they were making their way back home when they were accosted by a man in the Republic Square. The man was riding a motorcycle and wore a helmet and a white leather suit. The boys were not at all intimidated and began engaging him in a conversation. The man explained to them that he had just lost his little dog and was looking for him. He asked the boys if they could help. As a reward, they were promised as much candy as they wanted and it would be much better than the ones they were eating at the moment. The prospect made Ludovic's eye light up but Jerome insisted that they go back home. Otherwise, their mother would scold them. Not a problem, said the man. You can go back home and your brother can join me. Jerome and Nicholas returned home together, leaving Ludovic alone with a stranger. They didn't know that it wouldn't be the last time they were seeing their brother. At 9 p.m., an alert had been issued in the neighborhood. A six-year-old child had disappeared. Ludovic's parents and their neighbors searched every block. They went to the corner store, scoured garages, basements, and any abandoned locations, but there was no trace of the young boy or the man he was with. Late that night, they called every hospital in the department of Isère, but there was no news. They had no eyewitness and no trace of him. It was as if Ludovic had simply vanished. The next day, still without any news and sick with worry, the parents eventually reached out to the police. Jerome, who was visibly upset, gave a very thorough description of the man on the moped to the police. They made a composite sketch and examined the records of all thugs and criminals who had been recently active. Several arrests followed and the whereabouts and activities of close to 30 suspects were studied but yielded no result. Eventually, they were all released. In the days that followed, Ludovic's parents planted themselves firmly at the police headquarters until they were told that their presence was not helping the investigation and they were requested to go home. We'll let you know as soon as there is any news. The husband and wife returned home with a heavy heart. In St. Martin de Hears, young Ludovic's disappearance was all that anyone could talk about. It had become the local news topic. Neighbors tried their best as they could to support the parents, but their efforts were in vain. Without any news of their little boy, they were unable to sleep at night. News reporters from the Antenna 2 arrived a week later to gather testimonies from children. 
Jerome repeated to the reporters what he had already told the police, that the man who had approached him and his brothers were dressed in white with an orange striped helmet and drove on a moped. The boy's mother still believed that Ludwig was hidden somewhere and she held on to the hope of finding him alive. In front of the cameras, she made an emotional plea to the kidnappers. Please give us back our son. Don't hurt him. He's still my little boy and I love him. We don't deserve this. Without anything to go on, the investigation had difficulty of getting off the ground. The parents of the missing child made several attempts to find the tiniest bit of information but were unsuccessful. Oh, come on now. We already have told you that it wouldn't do any good to keep calling. We will let you know as soon as we have any news, said the police station attendant impatiently. The scathing tone discouraged them from going any further. Despite the lack of evidence, the scope of the investigation was increased to the whole department of Isair, where the first serious clue was found in the Wareb region, located 20 kilometers from Grenoble. Witnesses had notified the police of sighting someone on a moped who more or less matched the description that Jerome had provided on television. The suspect was immediately arrested, but the police eventually discovered that apart from the fact that he had a moped, he was not the person that they were looking for. Nevertheless, under pressure from the media, a great deal of effort was initially put into the search. The police, firefighters, the canine squad, as well as divers covered the entire area and searched for the waterways, but in vain. After a few weeks, the search was eventually called off. The Janvier's, being humble and trusting people, were convinced that the police were still looking, that the patrols were still searching everywhere and that eventually their baby would be found and those responsible for abducting him would be put behind bars. As for the parents, they were not about to give up either. For weeks, either alone or with their children, they put up posters almost everywhere in the area. They searched all around the department every weekend in their car, stopping passerby and showing them the most recent photos of their son. Have you seen this little boy? He disappeared on March 17. Yes, we're still looking for him. Yes, we're the family that appeared on TV. Yet, despite their best efforts to lead a normal life with their other three children, the parents were tortured by guilt, especially the father. As expected, fights broke out full of blame and humiliation. You couldn't go out by yourself and get your own cigarette instead of sending your kids? And you couldn't do any better job of looking after your brother? The police, silence only added to their frustration. Why don't they call? Why didn't they promise to call? Police tried to reason with the parents, reminding them that the investigations may last weeks or even several months and that this kind of things were never easy. But the Janvier family was close-knit and stubborn in their grief. They wanted it all and they wanted it now. Why us? They would ask anyone who would listen. However, the Janvier family was unaware that an incident very similar to their own had taken a few meters away from St. Martin on May 15, 1980. The missing child named Philippe Pignat was last seen in Le Mort sur la Isère, about 40 kilometers from Grenoble. After that, there had been no news about his whereabouts. Philippe had gone missing under similar circumstances as Ludovic and had not left any trace. The police continued to search for months, but were unable to find any significant clues to guide their investigation. Eventually, they decided to close this case too. The Ludovic case should have prompted greater vigilance from the police, but that was not the case. It was Saturday, 9th July, 1983, in the Adrian Ricard housing project in Grenoble. All the children had already been on vacation for a week. In a small second-floor apartment on Rue de Vercourt, Gregory Dabrule, an eight-year-old boy, was having dinner with his parents, brothers and sisters. The little boy loved the longer days and could think of nothing else but quickly finishing dinner so that he could go outside to play. 
At 7 p.m., Gregory sat in the building's driveway waiting for his brother to come down so they could start their football game. I was sitting on the steps when I saw a two-door sports car stop in front of me and the driver asked for directions. I showed him the way, but he insisted that I accompany him. I'm afraid I might get lost, he told me. Okay, I thought, being naive as kids tend to be at their age. I didn't give it much thought and I got into his car. When we got to the end of the road, I wanted to get out, but the man insisted on driving around one more time together. He told me that he knew my parents and that he would bring me back home soon. The man was pleasant, smiling, reassuring, well-dressed and drove a nice car. Gregory didn't ask himself too many questions. Besides, it would be so bad if he disobeyed his mother's warnings. Never talk to strangers just as once. The man graciously opened the passenger door and Gregory got in it and off they went. At 7.30, Eddie, Gregory's older brother, finally came downstairs, but his brother was nowhere to be found. He clearly told him to wait for him in the front of the building. Eddie waited a short time, just in case he'd gone to a friend's house in the vicinity. After 8 p.m., 8.30 p.m., and even 9 p.m., there was still no trace of Gregory. On the other side of the town, Gregory himself had no idea that his nightmare had only just begun. Immediately, he began to feel uncomfortable with this man. He also noticed that the atmosphere in the car had suddenly become eerily quiet. The little boy started to worry and regret his decision. He struggled to keep from crying. The constant warnings from his mother rang in his ear. He wondered if he should try to jump out of the vehicle, but he knew he wasn't strong enough. Perhaps he could start screaming, but that would only risk making things worse, especially since he didn't know where they were going. Gregory sneaked and looked at the stranger beside him. The talkative, friendly man from earlier had disappeared and was replaced with a kind of silent and menacing brute. The child noticed that the quietness of the car was much like when his father and mother were angry and refused to turn on the radio. The man kept on driving without even glancing at him. Soon, they were rushing into a small road in the woods. After that, Gregory could not remember anything until he woke up in the middle of a landfill in the late morning next day. What had happened? What time was it? Where was he? It was absolutely impossible for him to recall the sequence of an unfortunate events from the previous evening. The particular landfill where he found himself was located in Premier's La Placet, which was about 40 kilometers from Grenoble. Covered in mosquitoes and garbage, Gregory had a bad headache and realized that he also had a wounded skull. It felt something gelatinous when I touched the top of my head and I dried the blood on my face. Although he was quite weak and in a state of shock, Gregory managed to climb down the pile of garbage and drag himself to the edge of the road. A passerby noticed his horrific state and his wounds just in the nick of time and immediately drove him to the Grenoble Alps University Hospital, where he was admitted to the emergency. The surgeons remarked that the child was a true miracle considering the severity of the wounds to his cranium. The remainder of his diagnosis was alarming. Gregory was beaten, sustained facial injuries and was raped by his abductor who disappeared into the woods as quickly as he had appeared the night before in the Adrian Ricard housing project. Gregory's parents were immediately notified. They too had already contacted the police. At the request of the police, the little boy made an approximate picture of his attacker. He was European, he had brown hair and had a dark complexion. He was about 30 years old and was about 1.8 meters tall and had a tattoo depicting a heart with initials pierced with a blade. It was as if I were in a black hole. I was unable to remember the circumstances leading to my attack nor how I ended up in that landfill outside of Grenoble. Recalled Gregory, who now sports a heavy black beard and dresses in a jilbab since his conversion to Islam in 1998. 
For this latest kidnapping case, the police agreed for the first time to deploy about 100 patrols everywhere in the department. The only clue that they had to go on was the composite sketch that had been made. Despite their efforts, no one matching the description given by the survivor would be found and the search would eventually be called off as it had for Ludwig Janvier. The coverage of the two cases in the media at that time was quite extensive and focused on all kinds of questions and fears that such an event would generate. Someone was kidnapping children in Izzir. Why hadn't the police managed to capture the abductors? Was it a single person or was there more than one person involved? Following these two tragic cases, two years passed without any additional victims. Two years was long enough for the press to have forgotten about Ludwig and Gregory. However, neither the parents nor the police suspected that the horrific series of mysterious kidnappings were yet to begin again. It was June 25, 1985, in a low-income housing neighborhood in Abbey District of South Grenoble. The Yuari family from Morocco shared a modest apartment on the seventh floor of the Block C. In the late afternoon of June 25, Anisio Wadi, who was five and a half years old, went outside playing hopscotch in front of the building. When her mother called from the balcony to come dinner at around 7 p.m., Anisia never answered. Worried, the girl's mother rushed downstairs and searched around the building, but found no trace of her little girl. The neighborhood was alerted. The little girl's father, who worked the nights in a textile factory, was also reached at his workplace. The initial search in the basement, cellar, and nearby park was unsuccessful. The police eventually believed that the third kidnapping case had just occurred. This time, there had been no trace of how the kidnappers arrived there. No eyewitnesses came forth and no one had seen Anisia follow a strange person on the day. Two weeks later, the little girl's parents received a phone call from the judicial police. Anisia had been found dead in the Beauvoir Dam. For the investigators, everything led them to believe that the girl had accidentally drowned since she was found at the riverbank. The autopsy revealed that her body bore no traces of physical violence or sexual assault. Beside the dramatic circumstances of the little girl's death, the first question that came to mind was how Anisia, who was barely six years old, managed to travel all the way before being found at the bottom of the dam. According to the information gathered from her family and close friends, she was described by everyone as not being very bright, fearful, very timid girl. She was not the reckless kind of person who would willingly follow someone that she didn't know. She was aware of the dangers and feared her parents' admonishment. Her mother also added that she knew perfectly well it was strictly forbidden to stray too far and that she was limited to playing only in front of the building. Once again, the case was filed away with no follow-up. When the body of Anisia was recovered from the dam, it stayed in the public's mind for a long time and often appeared on the news section of many newspapers. Throughout France, the department of Isir had become known as a place that was unsuitable for raising children. The danger was now more threatening than any disreputable street in Paris. In Grenoble and the surrounding areas, everyone was on high alert. All parents of young children started to seriously worry. Every one of them had become haunted by the possibility of going to work in the morning and finding later on that their children had been kidnapped either on their way back to school or when they were out to play. However, what was most unbearable in this series of events was that for two years, neither the police nor the investigators were able to put a face on the kidnapper. There was no evidence and no trace of his whereabouts he remained an invisible danger who could strike at any time. Later that same year, in 1958, a macabre discovery gave the case new hope. In the engine's cave in the Vercors Massif, known for its thick vegetation and dark forest, where it was very easy to hide a body without anyone noticing, a child's skeleton was discovered by two cave explorers. 
Very quickly, the discovery became the subject of speculation. The skeleton was only partial. It was made up of a few bone deposits and was arranged behind a little stone wall inside the cave. At first, the discovery did not raise any suspicions because no one thought at the time that the bones might have belonged to one of the children who had been missing since 1980. Philippe Pignat or Ludovic Janvier. On the contrary, many believed that the bone deposits dated back to the war, given that many battles had taken place in the area at the time. In order to be absolutely certain, the departmental police decided to turn the bones over to forensic analysis. After a lengthy autopsy, one of the doctors stunned the population by announcing that he had found the answer. In his opinion, the bones could have belonged to a child of about six to seven years old. In this case, Ludovic Janvier who had disappeared two years earlier on March 17, 1983. This information gave investigators new hope as well as new directive to focus their search. At that time, legal medicine and the use of DNA information was very primitive. Thus, the only way to identify a body was to compare teeth using orthopantomography. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Unfortunately, it turned out that the Janvier family had no dental x-rays for Ludovic because he quite simply had never been to the dentist. Distraught at not being able to assist in the investigation, the boy's parents were firmly convinced that the fate was working against them. But what would the law do with these unidentified bones? That had suddenly proved so unsettling. The answer was revealed later. In the meantime, the Heaney series of abductions continued unhindered in Isir. On July 8, 1987, two years after the most recent case, little Charizade got people talking again. Previously, Charizade was living in a quiet low-income housing in the Bourgogne Jellieu with her sister and parents. They were modest people who were originally from Algeria who spoke little French. Their little girl was described as happy and as life of the party who loved playing around and going to school. The community was known for being a peaceful home to a diverse population. It was also able to take pride in not having any crime as opposed to other suburbs of the same caliber. Like the Bendou family, many other Moroccans and Algerian families still lived there. Everybody knew each other and crossed paths each day, and there was a kind of hospitality and solidarity inherited from Maghreb, which existed among the neighbors. Most of the men worked in the various factories on the outskirts while the women stayed home to take care of children and only went out to do shopping, visiting parents, or to the hospital. Before my little sister's disappearance, we had a happy and peaceful childhood. We were well looked after at school and home. In the neighborhood, we had a park to play in. There were pharmacies, a supermarket, and even a shopping center. We called Firoz, Shazarate's older sister. On July 8, 1987, at around 1 p.m., Shirzade disappeared while she was playing just outside the building. 
Earlier, she had taken the trash downstairs to the garbage room in the basement. She then went back upstairs to let her mother know that she was going to play with a few of the neighbors. Late in the afternoon, when she still had not returned, her mother sounded the alarm immediately. The news made its way around the apartment block and everyone started looking for the little girl. At first, we thought that she probably had an accident, that she would have been hurt somewhere around the road and couldn't get to us to let us know. We never thought of a second that this could be a kidnapping, not for one second. The very next morning, Shazred had still not returned and it was at that point that the parents realized that something very serious had happened to her. Eventually, they called the police. The police absolutely had no evidence to begin their investigation. After 48 hours had gone by, they were still at the starting point. The only thing they accomplished was to get the physical measurement of the missing girl and to promise the family that they would contact them if there were any new developments. Currently, everything seems to suggest this really was a case of kidnapping. Horrible memories began to resurface as a result. At the top of the list was the still unresolved case of the little Ludovic John Veer. People wanted to know if his kidnapper was the same person who met Shazerade. At the request of the TV station Antenna 2, Shazerade's mother and sister made an announcement in front of the cameras. Her mother, who spoke very little French, had to rely on her eldest daughter, Firoz, to act as an interpreter between her and the station's reporters. The message was simple. The person or persons who kidnapped Shazerade was asked not to hurt her and to bring her back home safe. Firoz was very moving and natural, taking great care to faithfully translate what both parties were saying. Her mother sat next to her, appearing very dignified, looking hopeful at the reporters convinced that they could speed up the search. Unfortunately, that proved to be not enough to get a criminal back off. After the interview, the only one granted to the family on the national television, there was complete silence. Weeks, then months passed till without any news of their little girl. As with the previous cases, the investigators didn't have any clue to help start their investigation. One thing was for sure, in the community, strangers were easy to spot and due to the crowded living conditions, everyone was on the lookout. If someone had approached Shazerade, it would have been possible under any circumstances for them to go unnoticed. How then could it be that no one had seen anything that day? All things considered, the little girl's family continued to believe that the case was still in good hands and that since the time they appeared on television, the police had already started their investigation. Just like in the case of Ludowick, Anisia and Gregory, Shazerate's file eventually sat alongside the others in the Grenoble Judicial Police's archives. Three years then went by, three years of respite. Many thought that the kidnappers aware of being in the headlines had decided to leave the department to hide elsewhere. That proved not to be true. In August 1988, Natalie Boyer, aged 15, disappeared. The teenage girl was the only child of a couple who had recently divorced. The young girl took her parents' separation very badly. Initially, she was placed in a foster home before rejoining her mother in their new apartment where she moved in the north of Grenoble. In this broken home, the roles quickly reverse. Natalie's mother had difficulty asserting her authority and controlling her daughter. She, on the other hand, in the middle of a teenage crisis, was particularly disagreeable, disobedient, and willingly rebellious. Having dropped out of school a few months earlier, she spends her morning sleeping and went out a party at night with her friends. On August 3, Natalie Boyer went out to take a walk around the residential area of Villa Fontaine, where she lived with her mother. Her body was found the next day on a trail near the railway. Her throat had been slit and she had been beaten to death. However, the autopsy revealed no trace of sexual assault. 
1989, there was a new disappearance and yet another body showed up. The events leading up to the disappearance dated back to January 13 in Grenoble when young Fabrice Ledeau did not return home from school. Three days later, a passerby made a gruesome discovery in the Charteu Massif a few kilometers outside the city. Fabrice's body was found at the bottom of the ravine. He had been strangled with the bare hands before being violated. The department had not had any break since they first started their sad list of kidnapping children. The only thing that was unknown was that who would be the next to join the list. A year later, a new disappearance followed by a murder occurred. This time, the victim was named Ratchet Bouzien, a young boy of five. On Sunday, August 5, he was playing outside his housing project in Eckerold, a popular suburb of Grenoble, known for being difficult and problematic. At 8 p.m., Rocket's mother realized that he had not come down for dinner. Two days later, his body was found rolled up in a carpet and thrown into a hangar about 100 kilometers from his parents' home. After a few months of intense investigation, the police finally closed in on a suspect who would turn out to be the actual perpetrator. His name was Karim Katif, a French Tunisian of about 30 years of age who also lived in the same area. Karim quickly confessed his crimes and revealed how he had followed Rakit the day he persuaded him to follow him into the basement to show him a gaming console. This had been the only case where the victim knew his kidnapper. Karim was initially remanded into custody before being sentenced to life imprisonment on the charges of premeditated murder, abduction of a minor, and concealment of a corpse. The curse continued to strike every year at least at the same time, either in the spring or the summer, and always in the late afternoon. In April 1991, Sarah Saeed, six-year-old girl, was kidnapped in front of her building in Moreb while she was playing with her twin sister. They were the youngest in a family of nine children of a Moroccan-Algerian couple. Her body was discovered 48 hours later in the woods. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. According to the investigative reporter André Viret, who had covered all the disappearances from Isère, these tragic events happened in times when investigators did not yet have the technological advancements required to properly conduct an investigation. He had this to say on the subject. In the past, a new case would instantly push another into the background where it would be forgotten. Additionally, it is important to note that investigations were headed by different divisions, sometimes by the police, sometimes by investigators, and there is no coordination between them, so they did not overlap. A new disappearance would become the top priority for a short time before being replaced by the next one and so on and so on. There was a five-year respite after the murder of Sarah Said. However, this respite did not last long. Disappearances started again unexpectedly when a new kidnapping generated a great deal of excitement in July 1996. This time the case was not like any of the others because of where the disappearances took place and the circumstances that led to it. The setting of the crime was also very different. It was no longer in Grenoble's overcrowded low-income housing units or in the modest homes of working-class cities that bordered the outskirts, but it was rather in the tail for massive in the Alps. It was also known for being inaccessible. Located about 2,000 meters above Lake Forshu in Livet El Gilet, Leo Bailey, six-year-old, had gone camping with his parents and some other friends. It was July 19, and the weather was very pleasant. Leo was all smiles as he posed for his father behind a camera. It would be the last photo taken before his disappearance. Joined by three of his father's friends, the little boy went to look for water from a small fountain dug out of a rock and located just a few meters from the campgrounds. But along the way, Leo became tired and decided to turn back. From that point, he was never to be seen again. 
It was a complete mystery, especially considering how difficult it was to imagine a predator kidnapping and killing a child in such a remote location, and one that was so inaccessible. Over the next few days, the mountain and the surroundings were thoroughly scoured, and a lake was surveyed by a team of professional divers without success. For the police in Val d'Isere, it was impossible to determine the cause of this latest disappearance in a setting so far remote from any form of civilization. What was most strange was that usually it was rare to find young children accompanied by mountain climbers on this kind of wildly unsuitable tour. Despite significant efforts made, Leo Bailey's body would never be found, just like in the case of Ludovic Janvier, Billy Bignat, and even Chazraid. On November 1996, a new abduction took place in Vorep, where Sida Birch, 10, was the victim. Her lifeless body was found two days later in a ditch, strangled. In total, since the early 1980s, Isir had a total of 11 child disappearances. Among them, seven were found dead, while four were never to be found. The only survivor of this tragic list was Gregory. As for the legal system, that was a whole other matter. The prosecutor's office in Grenoble stubbornly refused to make the link between the different cases and had difficulty admitting the striking resemblance that connected them. The possibility of an itinerant killer, although very convincing, was that judges had trouble recognizing. In fact, in their opinion, serial killers were the product of drunken, depraved Anglo-Saxon cultures. It was therefore impossible that French society could have harbored this kind of sexual depravity within its borders. The victims' families shared the same opinion and were unable to draw the connection between the disappearances. They continued to pull all their faith in the criminal justice system. According to them, they alone would be able to solve the mystery and to punish the guilty party or parties. In 1998, the unthinkable happened when the Attorney General of the Grenoble Prosecutor's Office gave the order to destroy the skeleton discovered on May 23, 1985 in a cave in Vercors. This was a miscarriage of justice that was as incomprehensible as it was candless. In response, the prosecutor's office defended itself years later by claiming that it was impossible to have done otherwise considering the lack of a genetic bank at the time, which would have been the only way to determine if the bones actually belonged to the Ludovic Janvier. For the Israel's justice system, this was unacceptable. In 1999, 11 other unidentified cadavers of children suffered the same fate. In the early 2000s, the Janvier family, who had just lost their father, asked the prosecutor's office in Grenoble to produce a letter attesting that their brother had indeed been kidnapped in 1983. The response came swiftly. We're sorry to inform you that the file number of the unidentified person has been lost. This was a crushing blow for both the mother and the other children. Our brother has been reduced to a case file number, as if he had never existed before, like his life wasn't worth anything. For us, it was as if Ludowick had disappeared twice, recalled Virginia Janvier. It would have not been until the early 2000s that there would be even the slightest progress. With the advent of the internet, some family members of the missing children started to lead their own investigations and even went so far as to pay private detectives to scour national archives. Firuz, the older sister of Shah's raid, who disappeared in 1987, did precisely that. By sheer force of will, she managed to reopen three cases that had been lying dormant with the help of a few lawyers who were moved by her determination and her desire to bring the truth to light. For months, Firuz made the rounds of all the libraries, consulted not only the archives on children who had gone missing in the department of Isère, but also on sexual predators who were running amok in the Grenoble area. 
In 2003, she contacted the famous investigative reporter, Jamie Chenet, as part of a call for witnesses. Shocked, the reporter realized that Shazraid's family was not in possession of the file concerning their daughter's disappearance and that a few articles clipped here and there from newspapers of the day were the only evidence they had, that she really did disappear on July 8, 1987. Jamie Chenet, armed with some paper, contacted the commissioner responsible for investigating disappearances at the national level. When confronted by Farouz, they responded tonelessly that the file had been deemed inactive due to the lack of evidence and that the search had been called off for the same reason at the end of the 1980s. Invited on a TV panel by a reporter who had by this time made the case into her personal battle, Firuz was surprised to learn that shortly after the disappearance of her sister, a judicial inquiry had been opened on the subject only to be quickly closed a few days later. Devastated by the news and overwhelmed by the events, the young woman decided to give it all up. However, she did make one last attempt in 2007, when she knocked on the door of the law office of Didier Seban, Corinne Herman, and associates in Paris. She did not know at that time, but fortune was about to smile upon her. Quickly, the two experienced lawyers, unique in their fields in France, took matters into their hands. They were not satisfied to simply practice their profession in a linear and traditional way. Together, they carried out a thorough investigation, almost like a pair of detectives. Furthermore, their office also specialized in investigations and private inquiries, copying the American trends of barristers who are versatile jack-of-all-trades. While browsing the documents that Firoz had bizarrely collected, Corinne Herman and Dieter Seban were horrified to note that the justice system hardly took the trouble, after all these years, to build a proper file and that the search had been completely abandoned after the end of only one year. We will never know that the file had been closed in 1988. Nobody had called or even taken the trouble to visit my parents to tell them that, unfortunately, the search has been discontinued. Instead, they simply gave us the false impression that work had been done and that search was progressing. The young woman lamented later on. The two lawyers, who were used to these kinds of challenges, were not willing to give up despite the inertia of the justice system and the lack of cooperation from the prosecutor's office in Grenoble. During the investigation, they discovered that Shazrat was not an isolated case. They learned that the children had disappeared as she did, at one or two intervals in the same region and in a radius of 70 kilometers between the 1980s and 1996. Following this macabre discovery, the two lawyers began an uphill battle. More than anything, they wanted to shed light on this dark chapter that no longer seemed to draw anyone's attention and that no one talked about anymore. All by herself, Corny Herman completed a Herculean task. She compiled a list of all the isolated cases of other disappearances for the very first time. This list had a name, the missing children of Izer. In the aftermath, the lawyer was able to locate the families of many of the missing children who were all still living in Grenoble and the surrounding areas. As a result of her efforts, many families were in contact with each other, notably the Janvier family who quickly joined Firuz. For the first time, parents, brothers, sisters, grandparents, and friends of the missing children no longer felt neglected and thrown against a wall of silence. In 2008, which was 20 years after the events and a result of intense efforts of teams of lawyers from Paris, the prosecutor's office finally agreed to reopen the case and relaunch the investigation. In the spring of the same year, a special task force called Miners 38 was eventually created, bringing together several investigators, profilers, forensic doctors, psychologists, and criminologists whose mission was to start the discontinued investigation all over again and to determine what mistakes led to so many files being closed. As a result of these joint efforts, two cases were able to be solved. 
in 2013 by using a DNA sample taken later. A person named Georges Pauli was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Sarah in 1991 and Saida in 1996. The case of the missing children of Isère remains one of the coldest cases in France that generated the most controversy in recent decades. Apart from the cases that were able to be solved, all the rest remains a mystery. Today, despite the important advances in terms of legal medicine and DNA expertise, it's still difficult to put a face on the person or persons who had unleashed such terror in the suburbs of Grenoble during the 1980s. Today, Gregory, the lone survivor of this carnage, has since converted to Islam. He's now a fervent practitioner, as well as married, father of three children, and still lives in Grenoble. When interviewed as a part of news coverage of the event, he revealed that he finally felt at peace with his past thanks to his faith, which he claimed saved his life when he was on the edge of Abyss and plagued by various addictions, including hard drugs. As for Faroz, who made her sister's disappearance her daily struggle for the last 30 years, she refused to give up and is firmly convinced that the truth will eventually come to light. Today, she lives in a village in High Alps with her four children whom she is fiercely protective. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.